When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, it's tough to get out of a traffic ticket, but there's one thing that just might work. Then your incredible immune system. It's why you're alive. However, I think it's important to understand that the immune system is like not a trivial affair. For example, like think of Ebola. Ebola, like a very serious, horrible disease, it still takes like four to five days to kill you. Your immune system can kill you in like five minutes. Also, why women like men who can make them laugh. And getting someone to change by giving them effective feedback. So when people talk about what they don't want somebody to do, there's a much greater impact when we talk about what we do want them to do. Hey, I'd like you to stop being late. If you flip that, we would say, I would like for you to be on time. From a neurological perspective, I want to talk about what I want rather than what I don't want. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Are you a good driver? Most people consider themselves to be better than average. I like to think of myself as a good driver, and one of the one of the criteria I use in making that determination is I don't get tickets. I haven't gotten a ticket in a long time. I don't I don't get pulled over because I'm I'm a fairly cautious driver. But if you do get pulled over by the police. You should really think before you say anything. When you understand who's in the power position, that being the police officer, you really only have one approach if you want to get out of getting that ticket, and that is to appeal to the officer's compassion. Frank Luntz, author of the book Words That Work, says, think about it. If you try to argue by saying you weren't going that fast or the radar gun is wrong... You'll always lose because you have no power in the conversation. But if you say, I'm sorry, you change the whole dynamic of the conversation. It may not always work. In fact, it often will not work. But police officers have something called officer discretion, meaning even though they pull you over for a violation, they are not required to give you a ticket. They have some discretion as to whether or not to give it. And appealing to their compassion is about the only way to get a break. And that is something you should know. Most likely you have a pretty good idea of what your immune system is and how it works to protect you. 
but you're about to hear it explained in such a fascinating way that will teach you things you never knew about your immune system and give you a much better understanding of how it works. My guest is Philip Detmer. He is a science writer who has a YouTube channel with over so over 14 million subscribers and like over a billion views. He has authored an incredible best-selling book called Immune, A Journey into the Mysterious System that Keeps You Alive. Hey, Philip, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Uh, hi, thanks for having me. So in a nutshell, explain very simply, what is the immune system? Well, the immune system is like the second most complex biological system known to us after the human brain. It, it's like a super complex, multifaceted organ system that like literally spans your whole body from like like your toes to your nose. It, it it has like hundreds of like little organs, little bases all over your body. It has like a its own highway system. It has like two bigger organs that you probably don't know a lot about. One is above your heart, as big as a chicken wing. It has like like trillions of cells. Um, every day you produce billions of new immune cells and billions die. It is you. It's like a into integral part of your body. When people talk about their immune system, they talk about things like, you know, he has a really strong immune system. He never gets sick or, you know, somebody does uh, take certain supplements and that that supposedly builds their immune system and makes it stronger. What's your take on all of that? There's many people who, who think they never get sick uh, because they take cold showers or like they do this or that, but like everybody gets sick. So that's, that's literally not a thing. Actually, our immune systems differ a lot from person to person. And that makes sense if you think about it. So um, if all of our immune systems were exactly the same, what could happen on a, on a species level is that like a, like a specific bug came along and just like killed all of us. So our immune systems vary a little bit from person to person. Or maybe your immune system is a little bit better with dealing uh, with viruses than mine. Maybe my immune system is a little bit better in dealing with like certain bacteria. But like through all these little differences, um, like on a species level, we, we can basically make sure that like no single thing can easily wipe all, um, all of us out. But yeah, so like immune, but like the immune system differs also a lot from our life lifestyle choices. So like if you smoke, for example, you make your immune system weaker. If, if you don't work out, your immune system doesn't have as good of a time or if you're undernourished. But also like lifestyle choices. And so I understand that, that there are things that you do that could suppress your immune system. But you also hear people talk about how, you know, if you take this supplement or if you eat this food, that you will improve your immune system. So is that possible or it's only there are things that make it worse, but there aren't things that make it better? <laughs> the, the problem with the immune system and with immunology in general, like, like nowadays, is that like people never like learned how complex the immune system is and how it works. And that gives, gives many people like the false impression. Like if you think about it, uh, it like uh, in the way people talk about it, it's almost as if the immune system would be, it's like a sort of energy field, you know, like a, like an, like a force that you can charge up and that can like wind down. And like, like if you put something in it, like your energy immune system field gets stronger. But that, that's not how it works. Um, the immune system is like a, like a really complicated orchestra of like many, many, many billions and trillions of parts that work together specifically. So the idea that you can like pop a pill or like, or buy an orange juice that has like immune boost on it. And then like your immune system gets stronger. That's just like not how it works. People have the, the image that like the immune system needs to be strong and powerful and like, like run around and like smash enemies in the head, like, like crack their skulls open. But like the immune system is actually a very dangerous system for ourselves. So like every time your immune system is active, it like does a little bit of damage. It like stresses your body. So you want your immune system not to be as strong as possible. You want it to be as balanced as possible. And boosting it, in a sense, is like a counter to that idea. It, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, I've heard that, for example, sometimes when you're sick, the symptoms that you feel are not the sickness. 
the symptoms are the result of the immune system fighting the sickness. It's your immune system that makes you feel the symptoms. So, for example, like if you have the flu and like like your arms and legs ache and you feel really bad and tired and, 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 and knocked out, that's actually your, your immune system doing its job. It uses up a lot of resources and in fighting, it, it does a lot of like collateral damage because it has to, it, like it can't be as selective. I mean, in, in the end, it's like, like it prefers to do a little bit too much damage instead of a little bit too, uh, like, like too less. Well, see, that's really interesting because I think, I think most people believe that the immune system is kind of this friendly gladiator that's by your side and fighting off all these terrible things to keep you healthy and safe. And I guess to some degree it is, but, but in order to keep you safe, it has to be very tough and sometimes it can be very, very powerful and even harmful. I think it's it's important to understand that the immune system is like not a trivial affair. For example, like think of Ebola. Like Ebola, like a very serious, horrible disease, it still takes like four to five days to kill you. Um, and your immune system can kill you in like five minutes. Like like if you have an allergic shock, that's your immune system uh, like misfiring very like very seriously. So the immune system has like much more power to like hurt and kill you. Many parts of the immune system actually have like no other job than calming down the immune system itself and just like measuring like how like is the amount of fighting we are doing is the reaction is that like just the right level is it too much is it too little and if it's too much can we calm down like, like your immune system has many built-in mechanisms that shut it off or like calm it down just to avoid that if this is such a complicated system you would think that there must be some kind of central command center somewhere that's that's keeping track of all that's going on but it but it from what you're saying it doesn't sound like it yeah no it, it does oh my god that's like yeah, one of the parts that makes the immune system so fascinating and and so cool the immune system is made up of cells cells are like little protein robots they they, they don't feel anything they don't think uh, they don't have like a motivation they're like robots that work to the magic of biochemistry, which means they're really stupid. So like a single cell can't do anything. Somehow through evolution and the wonder, uh, through the wonders of biochemistry, cells have like found a way to do really complex things, although like they individually are really dumb. And, and somehow through this way, um, our immune system usually finds exactly the right way and the exactly the, the correct response to a threat. So help me understand, is the immune system strictly a fighter that goes after things and kills them? Or is the immune system also a healer? And my example would be, say, if I cut my finger and in time my finger heals and goes away and the cut goes away as if it had never happened, can I thank my immune system for healing that or not? You can thank your immune system that you didn't die. When you cut yourself, like certainly a few bacteria, some that are living on your skin or like some like from the, your kitchen counter, wherever you cut yourself, they will like invade the wound and your immune system basically reacts immediately to like kill those invaders as quickly as, as, as it can. And, and if it couldn't do that, like then like the, you develop an infection that would kill you like sooner or later. When you cut yourself, you have like immune soldiers that are like living under the skin that are just like ready to defend you like on a moment's notice. So you said a few moments ago that like when you have the flu and you ache and you're all stuffy and your head hurts, that that isn't the flu. That's the immune system fighting the flu. But why does it do that? What, how does that fight the flu? Think about it like what a virus really is. You have like this little tiny parasite that infects your cells. It goes like into the cells themselves, multiplies and like one virus becomes hundreds or even thousands. And then it kills the cell or like it leaves the cell again. It infects again, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of new cells. So like the, the growth of viruses is, is just like super rapidly and, and like your body is pretty screwed in a sense. So um, your immune system had to like come up with a way to um, react to like to an enemy like that, and a virus infection like like the flu is like fairly serious actually. 
So like what, like you somehow need to prevent like those viruses that multiply so quickly to just like take over like, like your body in a few like hours or days. Your immune system does, is like they release an enormous onslaught of chemicals that flood your body. And actually like in, in the case of many virus infections, you can like detect those chemicals like in the blood before you feel sick. So like your body is like, like giving up. And, and these chemicals do a lot of things. So like, for example, they tell all of the civilian cells around like, hey, just like, like viruses are around, take care, like, like be, be careful, like, like slow down your natural processes, just like, like be on watch. Or they um, tell your brain, like maybe like a fever would be a good idea, like, like heat up and, and create an environment that the virus doesn't like. This is how cells do it. They release like all of these chemicals so to like tell a lot of cells like what they need to do right now, how they should react, how they should like like support the work of the immune system. And that is like, and you feel that is discomfort. Like a lot of that is like not great to you, which is also like like incidentally like a good side effect because it like forces you, you the actual living human, it forces you to calm down and seek rest and just like let the body do its work. I'm speaking with Philip Detmer. We're talking about the immune system and how amazing it is. Philip is author of a great book called Immune, A Journey into the Mysterious System That Keeps You Alive. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill, that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Philip, here's a question. When I get the flu or when I get a virus, I get it, the immune system goes to work, and then if I'm exposed to that virus again, I probably am not going to get it. How does yeah. the, how do we know? How does the body know? Well, you've had this before, and how does it protect me from getting it again? Uh, that's one of the most amazing things about the immune system. And it, it has like living memories. So, in a nutshell, you have like two different defense mechanisms in your immune system. You have like two different immune systems. You have your innate immune system. Those are like your immune soldiers that like they are ready at any time. There's an infection. They just like like, like stream in and fight. And this, your second immune system is your adaptive immune system. You can imagine that like as your super weapons, as like something a little bit more like stronger, but it has like a downside. It needs to gear up and like get ready 
it takes about like like five to ten days to get ready and and when it gets ready it like activates a lot of super weapons like you've probably heard of antibodies like those are parts of that throughout the infection basically get intel from um, your innate immune system determine which kind of enemy is attacking you they are like creating exactly the, the right weapon for that enemy like antibodies when that's fully activated you get healthy again like it usually like like kills the invaders and like ends the infection to do that it creates a lot of additional like super weapon cells and when the disease is over basically when you're good again most of these cells kill themselves because they're no longer needed but like some remain and they remain in your body for like years or maybe like if you're lucky for the rest of your life and they just like the next time the exact same enemy um, infects you, they are just like already there and they don't need those like five to 10 days to get ready. And that's usually enough to protect you against many diseases, hopefully like for a lifetime. What about this idea that we live perhaps in a too clean environment, that, that kids need to roll around in the dirt, that we need more exposure to bacteria and things for our immune system to work properly. What about that? Is that true? What what you're referring to is the hygiene hypothesis. It's sort of correct. It's a little it's a little bit different. So like the science is still not completely in on all of that. But like the idea is it's it's probably more like you're not confronted with the right kind of germs. When you are born, like as a kid, like your adaptive immune system is a little bit like a like a computer. Like the hardware is already there, but like not all of the software is like ready. In like the first years of your life, your immune system is gathering data. It's it's gathering like software to like boot up properly, which is like the reason why kids get like sick more often. So it's like their adaptive immune system is like not fully like activated yet. So when you're like not confronted with like a lot of the like quote unquote good germs that you should be confronted with then it doesn't get to collect enough of the software information, not enough data. And what this can mean is that like then later in life, like your immune system might overreact to like, like bugs that it should be totally fine with. Like in these early days, your immune system learns like, oh, oh, this bacteria again. Oh, I, I, I know them. Like, oh, like, 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 yeah, they are fine. Like uh, this bug can live here or like I'll just like quietly kill it, but like no big deal. And if it if it doesn't have this information, this can lead to like allergies uh, later in life. So it's, it's not so much actually that your immune system needs to like be, it needs to fight and toughen up. And it's way more that it like needs to learn like who is harmless. And when it learns that, what are the kinds of things that, or when it doesn't learn that, what are the kind of things, the, the, the kind of reactions that people have? What typically are those? Yeah, for example, hay fever or like certain kinds of asthma or like certain food allergies. It's, it's like the list is endless. Just like the, the immune system basically needs to learn that certain stuffs in our environment are just harmless and cool and like no big deal. And the immune system needs to learn which of those it, it can safely ignore. And if it doesn't learn that, then it will like react like overly react to stuff that it shouldn't react to. What about uh, stress in the immune system? Does stress suppress the immune system and make you more susceptible to illness? Yeah, for sure. Um, which makes sense. Like when we evolved way back, stress was like a sign usually of a, like a more immediate danger. You, you should be stressed if a lion is running at you. That's like a perfect, perfectly reasonable moment to be stressed. But we are not really built for like persistent stress. So it like suppresses your immune system and in that sense makes you weaker, makes you more susceptible to disease. So yeah, stress is bad. When I think of the immune system, I've always thought of it as a system that it just works throughout the body, but that it wasn't a thing or a place and there wasn't an immune system organ. But you say there is. One thing I'm, I find endlessly fascinating is one of the two big immune system organs um, and like the thymus. Most people have never heard of that ever. And it was pretty incredible because it's like a, it's, a, it's a little organ. It's about the size of a chicken wing and it sits right above your heart. And this little organ, I call it like the murder university. It's a training center for like some of your most strong, like some of your most aggressive and strong and like protective immune cells that you have. 
These immune cells, like they are called T cells, these cells are like they are born in your bone marrow and they travel to this organ above your heart and then they get checked. They get checked as like, hey, are they working properly? And especially like uh, those cells, could they maybe accidentally attack your body? And if they do, and if they don't pass the test just right, they are ordered to kill themselves. So out of 100 cells that like enter the thymus, 98 are killed or like die. And only like two out of 100 get to graduate and, and get to travel through your body and get to protect you. And like this organ, like the thymus, basically around the time, like at the latest when we enter puberty, it begins shrinking. The older we get, the more it shrinks and like, like the thymus cells basically turn into fat cells. And this is like one of the reasons why we are like more susceptible to disease as we get older, because like this organ, like this immune system university, it's closing departments, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and in your like 80s, it's basically gone. It's like, I think like you have like 1% left. And I find it so fascinating that we have like this organ that really has a lot to do with if, if how healthy we are and how good we can defend ourselves that like shrivels away. And nobody, nobody has like ever heard of it. I find it so cool. Like, yeah, I find this very interesting. And so say the word, because your accent, I'm a little, I'm not quite following. <laughs> What's it called? The thymus. T-H-Y-M-U-S. Talk for a bit about how the immune system fights cancer and how sometimes it wins and sometimes cancer wins. Cancer can trick the immune system in ignoring it or even in protecting it. That's, that's more like how, how I put it. Like one of the things like cancer needs to, to accomplish to become like a cancer that's like a problem for you is to like at first it needs to avoid the detection of the immune system because like at, at any point in your life you have like many, many cells inside your body that are like patrolling and are like checking for cancer. Like one has a pretty amazing name. It's like the natural killer cell. And the natural killer cell, what it does is basically it goes from cell to cell and just like say, like says, hi, how are you doing? Like, do you have like papers for me? And it just like checks like, like the papers of each cell. And if it doesn't like what it sees, it just like kills the cell. So just like it's, it, you have these cells really looking for cancer cells and they succeed basically most of the time. So immune system is pretty great at killing cancer. Cancer cells, if they want to be like su uh, successful, um, they need to like avoid detection, um, and that's what cancer does. It like it it needs to trick your immune system to think everything is fine. This is what cancer does. It like it, at first it avoids detection, then it builds up like a little as a city with, where no city should be built, and then it convinces uh, parts of your body that like uh, everything is fine. So it's like it, it's pretty pretty ingenious in a, in a way. So like cancer is. When it works, it, it, does, it uh, does a very good job in a sense, which is, yeah, bad for us. But if cancer is so ingenious, why does it continue to grow and kill its host, which ultimately kills itself? That doesn't seem ingenious. Cells are not conscious. They don't have thoughts. They don't have dreams. They don't have hopes. They don't have goals. And it's the same with cancer cells. They don't know. And maybe I can say that as a cancer survivor, it's like, like cancer cells are not evil. They're just stupid. They do what like every li living thing is like sort of like made to do. They want to survive and thrive. And they're, they're just not realizing what they're doing. It's, it will eventually lead to their own demise. Well, I've learned things today about the immune system I never knew. And I've always thought of it as being kind of mysterious like it's kind of hard to put your finger on but you've really helped to explain it and clarify exactly what the immune system does and how it operates philip detmer has been my guest the name of his book is immune a journey into the mysterious system that keeps you alive he's also got a youtube channel all about science it's really interesting and uh, there are links to the book and to the youtube channel in the show notes thanks philip uh, thank you for having me. Have you ever had someone say to you, I'd like to give you some feedback, and you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, oh God, here it comes, criticism, what did I do wrong now? You know what I mean. Often, feedback doesn't feel good. 
at all. But feedback, if done right, can be helpful, constructive, and instructive. It's that if-done-right part that's often missing. Here to discuss the important topic of feedback is Leanne Renninger. Leanne is an expert in behavior change. She has a really interesting TED Talk on feedback. She's co-founder of Life Labs Learning and co-author of the book, The Leader Lab. Hi, Leanne. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So generally, I think people don't like feedback because it's usually just another word for criticism. You know, people don't often tell me they want to give me feedback and then just tell me how wonderful I am. And so I think people put their guard up when they know feedback is coming and they're, they're, they're not really receptive to it. What's your take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if it's not done well then it's, of course, can do more damage than good. But I'd say done well, it's going to be one of the most important skills that a human can have. And so what does it mean to do it well? There's four parts to a good feedback message that we found from our research. And what it will contain, if I say it as simply as I can, is it's going to open with the person knowing you're giving feedback. So we call that a micro yes. So I'd say like, oh, wait, can I share observation I have, or can I share a thought I have, or can I share my reaction to to what I just saw or heard or or what just happened? So that'd be part one, if you picture like four building blocks. Um, then we're going to move to part two, which is naming the behavior that one saw. And that means not saying anything about the character of the person, um, but rather sticking with behavior rather than individual. So um, I noticed you showed up late to the past two team meetings would be an example. And then the third block of the four is your impact statement, and that will be sharing why it matters, because if we can't name the impact, then why are we even bothering to give that feedback? Um, That would be an opener, like I'm mentioning it because, or I'm bringing it up because, right? And then the last of the four building blocks is opening again with a question. So we round that back off with saying, you know, how do you see it? Or does it make sense that I'm, you know, I'm wondering about this? So those are the four the four building blocks. And I can give more examples later, but they're the foundations. And so how does that inspire change? What we've got going on here is two things. One is that I'm respecting the other person's capacity at that moment to take in the feedback by saying, you know, would it be okay if I shared with you some thoughts? And I'm queuing up that this is a dialogue. It's not just me data dumping what I want to say here. So I'm tending to the relational side of things. At the same time, by naming the exact behavior I saw and the the impact on me, what I'm doing is I'm enabling change to happen faster because I know exactly what it is that the request is to, to be changed and why it will matter. So I'm dealing with the facts and also the motivation behind making those changes happen. As difficult as it sometimes is to have to listen to somebody's feedback, it can also be difficult to give it. It's It's... A kind of a weird position to be in. What, what are some of the things that people do wrong when they're giving feedback? One is that as soon as we start feeling nervous as a feedback giver, the tendency is to talk faster rather than slower. And that's not the right thing to do because what it does is it's going to be um, increasing the other person's biological response as well. And what we want is to get into a, a space where both people can have a dialogue with each other. So my answer here would be, first of all, what people tend to do is talk too fast rather than going slower. And the second thing they tend to do is pretty quickly generalize. Um, and that means that they'll move away from talking about behavior and move into character assessments. As an example here, what they'll do is they'll say, oh, you know, you're not being reliable. And what would be better there is to say, what you, the way you just behaved is not consistent with what you said you would do. And the difference there is the moment I say, you're not being reliable, that's in my character. That's like who I am for good compared to a behavior lapse that I can easily change. When I think back on times I've received feedback from people, it, it's not like they're telling me something I don't know or that I was unaware of. Oh, really? I did that? Oh, I had no idea. It's often things I'm very well aware of, and I suspect that one of the reasons for giving feedback about something isn't so much to alert someone what they've done wrong, because they may already know it. It's to tell them you noticed and it had an impact. Yeah. You just said the key word there. You said it had an impact. And I think that's going to be the most important part of any type of feedback statement 
we call that the impact statement. So being able to say like, well, listen, here's why this thing matters. Because often what's happening is the person is doing the thing and they're like, nah, I, you know, it's, I want to keep doing it that way. They're not realizing the impact it has on the other person. So the, the, the more skillful we can get with naming the impact statement, what I mean by that is I'm mentioning it because, or, you know, doing this does the following for me. The moment we could do that, we can see a very much an increase in the motivation from the other person to want to make the change, um, particularly if I'm able to articulate that impact statement in a way that really hits the logic button and is clear for the other person. One of the things that, that I never liked when I was an employee uh, is when you would have those regularly scheduled meetings with your boss to go over your work. And the problem with those kinds of meetings is the boss isn't going to come to those meetings time after time and tell you everything's great. They've got to find something to complain about, even though maybe things are, are okay. But it's kind of like forced criticism. If we're having the meeting, we've got to find something to correct. And sometimes maybe there isn't anything to correct. I think that's one of the hardest parts is the feeling like we want to, we want as a feedback giver contribute and we want to be able to say something that's, that makes us sound smart as the feedback giver. <laughs> and in the end, my ultimate goal is to be able to enable positive behavior change rather than just to sound smart as the feedback giver. And I remember there's this story once I heard, I think it's, I can't remember which football team, I think it's the Dallas Cowboys, but I don't know much about football, um, where they were seeing a change very quickly in the players and it was because one of the coaches had shifted from instead of reviewing what the team member had done wrong, they actually put together a highlight reels. And so this power of positive praise. So like, let's look to see what you did right, particularly you did right. Let's put words on it, what you did right. And then let's break that down and see how we can transfer that to other situations in the future. That that can have much, um, much stronger impact in that our brain is going to be able to remember those things that we've done well and latch onto them and reuse them much better than the feeling of negativity that comes from, oh, I keep getting everything wrong in this case. What about when you give feedback? And I, I've had people give me feedback th that there wasn't really a, much of a point to it. It was just criticism for the sake of criticism. It had no real impact. It was more like, I just want you to know that I know that you did something wrong. Okay. Or it could even be praise. I mean, just praising for the sake of praise, which, you know, can I guess that can feel nice. But is that good feedback just to point stuff out? I'll, I'll share a story here regarding that. When I was doing my, my doctorate research, I arrived on the scene. I did this in Austria, and it was kind of difficult difficult for many reasons, one of which was it was in a different language. And two was I was new and I was coming into this lab of people who had been there for a long time. And one of the first assignments I was given was, I was told, go fix Bernvard. That's the name of a person. <laughs> and the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, like, I'd, I don't even know what how to answer to this request, go fix Bernvard. And so the person who gave me this assignment said, well, just go talk with them and you'll, you'll see what needs fixing. So I meet Bernvard and pretty quickly I do see what the person is probably referring to. And I think to myself, okay, um, if the idea is fixing, I don't like that word, but if the idea is to give feedback, because maybe I can be helpful with that feedback, then let me think how to do this well. And what I was trying to do was to, to translate what my brain was saying. My brain was saying, wow, this person, Bernvard, sounds grumpy. All the time sounds grumpy. Now, that's not going to be helpful for me to go up to Bernvard and say, hey, can I give you some feedback? Just notice that you always sound grumpy. That's not going to help him because he won't know how to not sound grumpy. If he did know how to not sound grumpy, he probably would do it more often. And so to get to the point around how do we help people, I think what's really important here is that we're able to find a way to articulate what it is exactly behaviorally that we're seeing or noticing. And so in this case, what I was noticing is that he would land each sentence with a downward beat. So for example, I would say, Hey, how's your day going? And he'd say, good. How about your day? And <laughs> so that intonation, that landing of that just came across to me as, Oh, he's mad at me. And so my attempt with giving him feedback was to say, Hey, I've noticed that when you, and I did a little bit of warm up there to say, can I share something? It's a little awkward for me to share it, but I'm just hoping maybe it's helpful. 
Um, and then you said, yes. And then I said, I noticed that you land each sentence. And for me, when I hear it, it sounds like you're angry. Um, and then I explain a little bit more what happens then. Then I, then I start to think I don't want, you know, I don't tell my full ideas and so on. To that, he said, well, I'm not, I'm not angry. <laughs> and there I said, oh, there again, you did the downward B. And, and again, I just want to share the impact it has on me. So this is the story can go on a little bit longer as to how we resolved it. But what I wanted to share here is he had never been told what it was that was coming across as grumpy and whether or not I was right or wrong with my assessment of what caused that, that um, perception. It definitely was something he could at least work with. And so my answer would be, yeah, we need to name it specifically the thing that's bothering us in behavioral terms. If we truly want to make impact. How did you resolve it? How did you get him to, or did you get him to change? And how did you get him to change? Yeah, well, this, this is a sweet part of the story. He's, by the way, giving me permission to share this story. It started off with some very sweet attempts where, as he would talk with me in particular, he would he would lift the ends of his words. So he'd be like, so how is your day going today, Leanne? <laughs> and it was an exaggerated attempt. Now, suddenly we, we had an injection of humor into the situation. But what I did notice is that over time with his other colleagues, too, people could see that he was making more of an attempt. Now, it's not, he doesn't have to follow everything other people would want, but what I was hoping for in my care for him over time, like truly, I started really hoping that he could improve his relationships, is that there'd be at least an understanding from his side, oh, the person might be thinking that I'm mad at them. I don't want that. And so the resolving of this situation was for him to actually say more often, oh, I like what you're saying. And so he does intonation. I like what you're saying. Um, I'm just wanting to think more about it, right? So he could add more intention statements and articulate more what he was thinking rather than letting people interpret it through his downward intonations. That brings up another point about feedback is that sometimes, I, mean, I can think of many times where it's sometimes easy to dismiss it because it's just one person's opinion. You might think he goes down on his sentences and that makes him sound grumpy, but no one else has ever said anything to me about it. So maybe I'll just dismiss this. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, right? So if the person wants to try to understand a data set, that's totally fair and they should do so. What I want to do is build a foundation for them to at least be able to, to say in this data point of one, I'm noticing this. And if I'm going to maintain a relationship with, in this case, me or whoever it might be, um, I want to try to improve that relationship. There's one thing I want to add, though. <laughs> And that is the danger in invoking what we call the royal we. So we have noticed that you, or I've heard from other people that you, or I continually hear that you, that type of feedback is not going to land because it's going to immediately pull up the defensiveness as social creatures. We, we really, of course, don't like the idea that other people might be talking about us. And so my suggestion would be to not triangulate. Triangulate means that I'm going to say what somebody else said about the other person. So instead of just a one-to-one -one relationship, I'm pulling in other people and instead try to just name my own observations. Um, and if the person doesn't change based on that, that's okay. I can just keep naming the impact on me over time. Right, because it's very common, and I think for, for people to, to use the royal we, and you know, it's not just it's not just me that's noticed. You know, other people have noticed this too, because you think that that's kind of bringing consensus to the table here, but. But what you, you're saying is it, it really just creates defensiveness. Yeah, there's a technical term for this called the quantum Zeno effect. Sounds very fancy. But the idea here is I don't want to actually hinder the possibility of change within the other person. What I want to do is I want to enhance the possibility. I want to catalyze their, their urge to change. And so often we think oh, when we invoke the royal we, that's going to add more fodder to the fire. Are there other things besides feedback? that work to get people to change their behavior? Whoa, I like this question. Yeah, so what comes to my mind is that I want to create an environment that makes it more possible for that person to enable change to happen. So on the one front, what I want to do is I want to be able to ask questions that will inspire insight for the other person. And what I mean by that is I could tell somebody what to do, we call that stepping into telling mode, right? Or I have a choice. I could step into what we call questions mode. So Q-step, step into questions mode. And with a questions mode, what's happening is I, I move a lot more molecules in their brain because instead of saying like, I think you should do X, Y, Z, 
if I say to them, well, what do you see as your options? What, what do you think would happen if you do it this way versus if you do it that way? Um, and the more molecule change I can have happen in their brain, the more likely we lay down a neural network that will enable that change to stick for the future. And so I'm thinking constantly about, you know, as a behavioral scientist, I'm thinking about how can I basically help neurons grow faster within their brain. And the best way I can do that is to help them come to the insights themselves. Rather than tell them. Yeah. And I want to do that with unauthenticity there. I'm not trying to manipulate people here. If in the end, I might be wrong about what I'm thinking is the best solution. Um, but through that dialogue of me saying, okay, wait, what questions should you be asking yourself? Number one. Number two, I want to ask them, what do you see as your options? Number three, I might ask you, what, what does success look like for you in this situation? And then I want to maybe move them into action and say, well, what do you see as the next steps? And then from there, I can like be like, okay, and how can I be helpful to you? What do you see as the obstacle? Like, There's so many different great questions we could be asking to help move their brain in a different direction. And I don't care where their brain lands. I just want movement. That's the first step to great change. Well, it does seem that if you really want to give feedback so that people change, you got to be really careful how you say what you're going to say. Otherwise, people are just going to shut down, clam up, and, and nothing will happen. In fact, you could make things worse. I think there's something really important in the ways of wording things that people often neglect. And one of the things that I was really surprised by when we, when we were doing this research on feedback is we call this positive positive reaches. So when people talk about what they don't want somebody to do compared to talking about what they do want somebody to do, there's a much greater impact when we talk about what we do want them to do. So if I name something like, Hey, I'd like you to stop being late. If you flip that to the positive reach, reach for something rather than away, we would say, I would like for you to be on time. And if you look at that from a, from a neurological perspective, if I keep emphasizing the word late, or don't eat the cookies, um, stop being so distracting. I'm taking it, I'm using the words over and over again that I don't want them to do compared to if I flip it and say what I want them to do. So be on time, be proactive, whatever it might be. I want to talk about what I want rather than what I don't want. You know, I've always wondered, like you tell me if that's real research. I remember hearing someone say like, when you when someone goes to the store and you say, don't forget to get the milk or don't forget to get the bread, it's better to say, remember to get the bread. And that, that sounds right, but is there real research that, to support that? Yeah. I mean, even if you just look from an intuitive perspective, right, you're saying it sounds right. Just simply think about what were the tracks we're laying down on the brain from a neural circuitry perspective. The, the thing that we repeat is the thing that's going to be remembered. And so if you look at the research around this, it's if I say, don't eat the cookies, all I'm repeating over and over again is cookies, cookies, cookies. <laughs> Instead of saying, eat fruit instead, eat fruit instead, fruit, fruit, fruit. So even on a, just a, a simple gut check level, we can say that makes sense. And it also lines up also with what research says as well. What about asking for feedback? Is that a, a good way of getting it? Is to just go out and ask people, you know, how did I do? Rather than wait for them to decide whether or not to tell you what they think. So another tip I would have in general uh, for everyone is the notion of push versus pull regarding feedback. And often what happens is after we've done something, we're waiting for, for people to give us feedback and we call that push feedback. So someone's going to push their feedback onto us. And the suggestion I would have is to always be a puller of feedback. And what I mean by that is you proactively go to people and say, hey, how did I do there? I really want to learn. Um, can, you, can you name something you think I did well? and something you think that I could optimize. What ends up happening there is that by being the puller of the feedback, you become the controller of it. So even if a person says something negative, or even let's say, you know, you did something wrong. If I come up and say like, Hey, what'd you think? Suddenly I am in a position of power because I'm coming in with a learning orientation rather than a punitive orientation. Like, Oh, I did. I know I did that wrong. And so to be the puller of feedback means having that habit. And my suggestion to listeners would be even right now, after you're done listening to, to, to what I'm saying, grab your phone. And if you have the bravery to do this, text three different people and simply say to them, hey, I'm looking to learn. And what I'd like for you to do is to share three words that come to your mind when you think about me. And I'd like for them to be three things you think that are positive about me. And then one thing you think you could, I could optimize. 
And it's really interesting. You start seeing these, these words coming in from your friends because over time you start to see patterns in what's happening. And weirdly, because you were the one who asked for the feedback, you pulled the feedback, you're in control. And it feels almost like, oh, I'm an experimenter trying to learn. And whether or not I agree with them doesn't matter because what I'm seeing is just data points. And with that, I can decide what I want to do with that, with the, with the data I've collected. Well, I think this is such an important topic to discuss because everybody at some point has to give feedback and is going to get feedback. And understanding the dynamics of it, how it works and what's effective, I think makes it a much more worthwhile exercise that has some real impact. I've been speaking with Leanne Renninger. She is an expert in behavior change, co-founder of Life Labs Learning, author of the book The Leader Lab, and she has a really interesting TED Talk you can see online about much of what we've been talking about on the topic of feedback. There is a link to her book and to the TED Talk in the show notes. Thanks, Leanne. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. In a survey of women in 33 different cultures around the world, women universally agreed that they are attracted to men who can make them laugh. Why? Well, there seem to be two reasons, according to researchers Alan and Barbara Pease, who are authors of the book Why Men Want Sex and Women Need Love. Men who can tell a joke and have a sense of humor are accorded a higher status by other men. And men who are admired by other men have historically been attractive to women. When you laugh, you release endorphins, which build up your immune system. So women seem to understand on a basic evolutionary level that being with a man who makes them laugh is good for their health. And that is something you should know. If you found this episode of Something You Should Know interesting, helpful, useful... I hope you'll leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.